C-A-M-P-A-D-U-L-T-H-O-O-D Camp Adulthood Bridging the Millennial Divide One conversation at a time Interviewing guests Strangers and friends We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood Hello and welcome to Camp Adulthood and the Resident Youth. I'm Camp Adulthood, Shay Keats. And I'm the Resident Youth, Maddie Yergi. And we are so delighted. Another esteemed guest for you guys. We most have esteemed. Most esteemed. We have Shannon Jones, and she is a research technician in marine science and marine biology. And she, according to our inside sources, a.k.a. former guest of the pod, Zoe, that made this introduction to us, um, she is also starting her Ph.D., very fancy, at the University of Delaware, focusing on pollutants and how they affect shellfish populations. So very cool and interested in uh, diving more into that in the interview portion. So welcome, Shannon. Hi, thanks. So before we, I'm feeling oh, I'm getting ahead. strong vibes of another former guest of the pod, Miss Amy McLaughlin, when yes. she was on. I was thinking so the we same had thing. one of our early episodes with a friend of mine who's also she's an environmental scientist and specializes in wetlands and and all of that. So I'm excited to revisit some of the topics yes. uh, we talked about with her because the world is in an even worse shape than it was two years ago. <laughs> Is it even yeah, possible? so uplifting. I know. I thought the same thing, especially the photo that Shannon submitted. She's wearing waiters. And I think Amy's photo, she was also yeah. wearing waiters. So I, I love so. that that's yeah. a theme. Yeah. Also, by the time this episode airs, Amy will be mom to her first little girl. So oh, official a little girl. I want it to be a girl. She actually hasn't said if it's a boy or a girl, <laughs> but not that it matters. Gender is a We're construct. Putting but the vibes into the world. Yeah. Cool. Well, before we dive <laughs> yeah. into our segments, Shannon, maybe just to place you on the millennial spectrum, if you could um, tell us how old you are, where you grew up, and then just a brief synopsis of what you're doing now. Um, okay. So I was born in 1993, so I am a younger millennial. Um, and I grew up in upstate New York. Um, I say upstate, it's about halfway between New York City and Albany. So if you ask anybody from like Upstate, upstate. It's not really upstate. Um, and what is even up? Th- like, what's the name of your town? I'm like, what is even up there? Uh, so I'm from High Park or Poughkeepsie area, um, which is the top of the commuter line into New York City and the bottom of the commuter line into Albany. I love it. I love it. Double I'm suburb. A- double suburb. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Did not mean to interrupt. Oh, I forgot where I was, was saying. Okay. So, so you you lived there and I lived there. Um, and I went to college in Boston with Zoe, who is a former guest. And I worked a couple places, a couple different universities. I just left a uh, large research institution in the Midwest, whose name we will not say. And now I'm at the University of Delaware, and I'm a PhD student. Awesome. Yeah, I can. Bl- I think I said it before, so I'll bleep it. Why? Wait. Why can't we say it? What is it? Oh, it's. We can say uh, it, just I might not be nice to them, and I don't want to get in trouble. That's okay. I'm a Michigan fan, so I'm fine shitting on them. That's okay with me. <laughs> That's cool, though, too. That's cool with me. Awesome. Cool. Um, can't wait to di- dig into all of that. So diving into our campfire topics, do you have a toasty campfire topic, Shay? 
Well, I just think we would be remiss to not spend a few minutes talking about the great loss to our country on Friday of uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Also, all that was keeping us between, you know, <laughs> keeping us from anarchy. <laughs> so I know, I'm, like, uh, can I'm very, we hold very it together sad about collectively. It. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if we can now. hold it together collectively. Um, but just, uh, you know, it was, it's been, there have been so many wonderful pieces written about her over the weekend. And it has just made me realize how many things I owe, not just to all of the many women who came before us, but particularly to, uh, Justice Ginsburg and her amazing legislature that she spent many decades pushing through. So I just wanted to you know, say thank you and certainly acknowledge that, like, I get that I'm allowed to do what I do because of her. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Pouring one out for RBG. Yeah. Cool. Um, my Toasty Campfire topic is I was very excited to see that there was a book that just came out. So you might have recalled we talked about it on the pod a few months ago, but there was a big spread in BuzzFeed by this woman, Ann Peterson, talking about millennial burnout and how we're kind of the burnout uh, generation. And she just came out a bo- with a book, and I just love the title for so many reasons, but it's called Can't Even. And then the subline is how millennials became the burnout generation. So I'm really excited to d- read that book. I haven't read it yet, but she's been um, in a, you know, doing the press circuit for her book and there's an article that we'll link to in the Atlantic and um, we can link again to that BuzzFeed article for those that missed it the first time around but I think it's just such an interesting topic and especially as millennials are getting older even us like young millennials like Shannon and I are now like firmly you know in our career and have had a number of jobs at this point out of college I just got promoted to being a manager and I have like direct reports now, which is very weird going from like being a junior minion to like a more senior minion on the totem pole. Um, So proud of our minion, Maddie. Thank you. Um, And it's just interesting feeling, especially in this COVID work from home for those of us that are lucky enough to work from home, feeling even more burnt out than we already are. So it's just interesting seeing in the literature and from the press that I feel like the millennials are going to be known as the the burnout generation from our work life. Like, I think we were known as kind of like lazy slackers, like whatever. We've spent a lot of time. And one of the reasons why we have this podcast is trying to dispel myths about millennials. Um, but it's interesting as there's more research about millennials in the workplace, just how burnt out they feel, how they work so hard and then feel like they... Um, have to change jobs very frequently just to get some sort of relief. And one of the things that they talked through, I think there's many reasons that um, Anne goes into in her book, but one of the ones that stood out to me from this article kind of going through the highlights was how millennials were parented and the fact that we um, never really had a time where we weren't responsible and how a lot of parents Mm. of our parents' generation, they kind of prided like, well, your daughter is so well-spoken. She can have a conversation with adults. And as someone who was always a very precocious child, and I always liked hanging out with adults more than children when I was younger, it was always like that was something that I was pri- that I was always so prideful of. 
and something that I really liked about myself, that I was always very mature for my age, and I was doing things that other kids my age weren't doing, and I was always reading books that were above my, you know, reading level and whatever, and Ann Peterson really talks about how um, it's just setting up kids for a world of labor, and that the love that they get from their parents is based on their labor and their output Mm -hmm. in an adult (laughs) world, and doesn't leave this space for, like, rest and imagination and not being productive at every single moment of of the day and so I just thought that really hit home for me so I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that from your perspective oh Madeline I have so many thoughts I can't I don't I don't even know where to begin I mean first of all I love that analysis of millennial childhood because I do think and I think it shifted a lot you know kind of throughout the 20 years that millennials were children right that is a time of the past Um, and I think it will really affect the way millennial parents right raise raise their children Um, and you know we do continue to lose that freestyle playtime etc etc but like I also want to say not a hundred years before, small children were like working in the salt mines. So, I mean, <laughs> nobody's calling point. like kids that were born in 1890, you know, the uh, burnout generation. But I digress there. But I, I think I really, I really struggle with the whole concept of burnout. And I know that there is a lot of good work being done on it. I'm definitely interested to read this book, Maddie. So I may ask you to pass it along when you finish it. Um, But because first of all, I think burnout becomes this catch-all for other mental health issues that then get ignored. I also think it becomes an excuse for Okay, this is maybe my like, like for old employers lady to take advantage of their employees. Well, for for that, but also it's like, oh, I can't do that. I'm so burned out. And I'm like, well, to me that just seems like yeah, a real blanket. Saying. It's the blanket same way term. a lot of people are like, I'm so OCD when they that's like a real yeah. But I also like I'm try. I guess part of the reason I feel so strongly about this is I've been really examining it a lot in the context of my own work and because someone. I'm like debating if I should even like say who this is because they are a former guest of the pod and I feel like I'm about to like not like shit on their work because I love their work. Okay. I've drank all their Kool-Aid. But um, so Brianne Wick, who was a guest probably, I don't know, about a year, year and a half ago. She was my business coach. I've been to her retreat. She's an incredible, incredible person. And then last fall, she basically like fell off the face of the earth for like six months and she was like, well... I'm burned out. I'm suffering from a serious, like, clinical case of burnout. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And then there was a, a part of me that... sometimes. Yeah, it was a little nebulous. And then there was a part of me that's like, here's this woman that I extremely respect. Her work is really good. She's extremely vulnerable. She's very open, you know. Um, and yet I'm feeling, like, resentful because she's kind of just been able to be like, well, I'm burned out, so I'm like, peace. And I'm like, yeah, it must be nice. You know, so there's well, maybe, a party I'm really in- maybe interested. Maybe this is the, like, cycle where, like, you're, it is kind of a double-edged yeah. sword. Maybe you're feeling burnt out, and then you're feeling resentful because Brienne got to take a break and, like, reset well, her life. And now she's writing, like, romance novels. Fantasy novels. I'm fantasy like, novels, I, I don't even me. understand what's going on right now. And so, anyway, so it's something that I've been spending, like, a lot of time examining in in myself. But I think it comes back to, you know, as someone for whom 
you know, advocating for people with mental health issues is really important to me. I think that we get, there's something dangerous about say, about saying burnout when there are so many, I guess you would call them comorbidities or, you know, other mental health issues. Like maybe we need to call it what it is and not just say that it's burnout. And yes, I think the millennial workplace contributes to a lot of this, but also, I think the millennial workplace in a lot of ways is way more chill than the Gen X workplace. So those are my, that's my random jumble of thoughts. Um, Shannon, yeah. do you have anything to add? Particularly coming I mean, from an academic world. Yeah. So, I mean, there have been days in the past where, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're like, am I sick today? Mm-hmm. Am, how sick am I? Because, you know, I don't know if anybody else's parents did this, but my parents did a thing where they said, If you're too sick to go to school, you're sick enough to go to the doctor. So anytime you didn't go to school, you did go to the doctor. And also, which like, that's, thank you, privilege for going to go to the doctor. But at the same time, if you're sick enough to not go to school and to go to the doctor, you don't get to do anything else that day. Like you are sick, you stay still. And so, you know, if, if you're not, (laughs) if you're sick, that means you're completely like unproductive. There's no middle ground. You were either like There's no dying or super productive. Either, right. You're either productive or you're basically dying. So, you know, I kind of still struggle with that where I, if, you know, you like, you have, even in a COVID world where like you're supposed to stay home if you have even a sniffle, because what if it's, you know, coronavirus? Um, are we allowed to say that on the podcast? Yeah. I don't even know. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. They can't say it on YouTube. I don't know where you put this. Oh, really? <laughs> wait, you, wait, you can't say coronavirus on YouTube? Yeah, there's a whole thing. They're, like, banning people for saying COVID. Because they want and... only the information coming from, like, the CDC right. to rise to the top. Oh. I yeah. mean. Well, so, I'm yeah. going to put it up and we'll see. I don't, I don't think. Yeah, we're not on YouTube. So. I'm sure it's fine. But, um, but yeah, no. If in a world where, like, you're supposed to stay home. And, like, be productive from home, but stay home if you have so much as, like, a cough, a sniffle. Mm-hmm. It's really weird for me because I feel like if I am if I do have a sniffle, I have to be just as productive as any other day. But mm-hmm. at the same time, if I do have a sniffle and I do feel like I'm sick, like, now I can't be productive all day. Yeah. So it's, like, a weird yeah. duality Have you thing. seen, like, in academia, too, just because it is so competitive like getting these research positions and getting into phd programs that that exacerbates it or you think it's kind of similar to maybe other more traditional nine to five jobs no i think that it's as bad as a nine to five if not worse in academia i have seen a lot of grad students work themselves like not quite to a point where they've made themselves sick but in a similar thing and I don't know what the clinical definition of burnout is and if that counts but the the lab that I was working for before I was at UDEL when I was at Notre Dame um, did have a really chronic problem where like there was no work-life balance if you weren't in the lab from before 9 a.m. until 6 or later you were the problem so like that kind of you know mentality really does add to people making like working themselves into a place where they don't have any time off. They don't have any mental reserves because they don't have any physical reserves left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I'll say too, that kind of goes to what both of you are saying that they talked about in this article is like, I think the personal responsibility piece, I think you were kind of touching on this Shay of like, where does it, 
where does the line cross when we're all adults between like a systemic problem and then like people just taking ownership for how much time they're giving to an institution um Mm -hmm. and then to your point shannon of like what do we um kind of internalize from our parents and they talked a little bit about and Anne Marie or Anne Peterson talks about it in her book of the millennials lack of being able to set boundaries and I thought this was super interesting because of our relationship with our parents because we're a generation that by and large especially the middle class population of people that I think we're kind of sitting in that we value as adults our relationship with our parents if that's a choice that we've made and millennials are more likely to be quote-unquote friends with their parents or voluntarily like spend more time with their parents and that's why we're seeing you know millennials that are taking care of children and choosing to take care of aging parents Um, but also the helicopter parenting I think especially with younger um, millennials and I've definitely felt this as well. Like, I, I wouldn't consider my parents to be helicopter parents, but they were certainly way more involved than, like, you know, their parents were with them and stuff like that. And it's hard if you don't know how to... The relationship with your parents is the first relationship that you have with a superior. And that kind of mirrors itself in the workplace. And so if you never learn to set a boundary with your parents and they're always all in your shit with, like, homework and they're the ones ruling your life, that's like triggers stuff in the workplace too. I just thought it was really interesting. Oh, that is interesting. I, yeah, because I feel like, and and again, I think we're always looking at kind of that millennial spectrum. And I think there was, you know, when I was growing up, my parents were definitely very involved in my activities and in my schoolwork and they knew what was going on, but it wasn't like, I think how it shifted to by the time you were in school, Maddie, where it was really that like helicopter parent yeah. uh, situation. But, you know, these are these these generational differ- differences, um, I think, that are so interesting to explore. And I, you know, it made me also think of, um, I remember I was at my last job, we had hired a new sales director, and she was 50. Um, and so at the time, I, she was like 20 years older than me, I was like 30. And um I remember her just looking at me and being like, I, I don't answer emails after six o'clock. And this was like such a mind blowing moment for me because I was at that point and I've, you know, especially now and in my current work life, I don't have to, you know, I do set very firm boundaries around work, but well, we'll see. Mostly <laughs> I try. Um, I can, I guess I set very firm boundaries around work. Um, but I had never seen anybody give me that example, right? So that was the first person I had had a professional job for 10 years, more than 10 years before I met somebody who was like, oh yeah, I, I don't, I'm not going to respond to you on the weekend. And I was like, what? Like I can do that. And it was so interesting. And I think it's important, you know, to show more examples of that. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Cool. Awesome. Do you have a, toasty campfire topic shannon if not we can jump right into the interview but if there's something burning on your mind a topic or anything out in the world um today's national voter registration day oh yes so i just registered to vote that's all i gotta say we love it shay and i love voting i can't believe this is great that we had you as a guest on this particular day because i'm usually always giving psas about voting so this is awesome i love voting (laughs) i 
I mean, it's it's really one of my, I would say, top five favorite activities. Yes, same. It's so, yeah. I was just talking to my dad, actually, because he um, was, he actually just got a new job, but he was um, without a job during the primaries in Michigan. And so he was volunteering as a poll worker. And mm-hmm. it's just so fascinating, all the stuff that they had him do and all the intricacies of being a poll worker and it was just fascinating to me like the fact that they have like two people after they certify the ballots they like take the locked box and they always have one registered democrat you have to to be a poll worker at least in michigan you have to they don't let independents do it which i thought was really interesting so you have to be a registered republican or democrat and then they have one Democrat and one Republican physically drive the box like to the clerk's office to make sure there's no like funny business. So that was just one random fun fact I learned from my dad. I was like, whoa, crazy. It's really like a ramshackle, very local system we have here, but interesting. Lots of checks and balances. So mm-hmm. I thought that was cool. All right. Well, shall we dive into the interview portion? Yes. Yes. So Shannon, I'm so excited to Tell us a little bit about your journey of how you came to study this and and what inspired you to do this work. Okay, so when I was little, I was absolutely obsessed with, like, ocean creatures. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, oh, are y'all frozen? No. Okay, you're just no, still. We're, That's just, fine. we're just so excited. We're like, That's tell fine. us more, Shannon. I feel like you're yeah, living the dream. Creatures. I feel like so many, yeah. gr- like, young boys and girls are like, I want to be a marine biologist and study whales. And like, mm-hmm. you're living the dream. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of unnecessary, co- not competition, but like, angst. I don't know what to call it. There's some back and forth within even within marine biology, with people who study megafauna, mm. which is like big animals. So the charismatic megafauna are like the fun big animals, like a whale, a dolphin, a porpoise. Um, And then people who study real things. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Like, because everyone thinks when you think of a marine biology, you think of like the whales, the dolphins. But those things, it's such a narrow field. Like the, the amount of people, I think... I went to Northeastern in Boston. And so of my like incoming freshman class, there was 17 of us who were marine biology focused, um, like freshman year. And of those, I think less than three of us graduated and got jobs in marine biology and no one works on whales. Yeah. One girl works on a whale watching boat, but she doesn't. like does that I don't know sort of in the field yeah um so almost no one ends up working on like the charismatic megafauna and it's not that the rest of us are jealous but that we feel like we're superior you know (laughs) there's like a little bit of like you have to develop a superiority complex because you're like oh I don't work on whales I don't work on dolphins charismatic megafauna we know everything about them they're like kind of boring i like what i'm really into is diatoms (laughs) oh my god amy was a diatom person as well i feel like diatoms this is so crazy people love diatoms charismatic megafauna is maybe my new favorite like term and i'm want to how can i work this into every conversation (laughs) 
I mean, you just have to say it really derisively, like, ugh, charismatic megafauna, ugh. It's so funny. So how did you find the particular field of study looking at pollutants in the ocean and the specific topic that you're doing for your PhD? I'm fascinated by, like, the PhD process in particular because it's yeah. so... You're just at the beginning, too, right, mm-hmm. of that whole journey. Also, side note, Maddie, take a note. I have an idea for another podcast. Great. Is it about charismatic meta- megafauna? Well, I think we should call it charismatic megafauna. But I last week I watched uh, my friend Lizmo. We, she was defending her dissertation. Uh, and I watched her dissertation defense uh, in Spanish literature. And I was like, these poor people never get to ever talk about this again. And I'm like, we should have a podcast where we have people come on and like talk about their dissertation in plain language for 20 minutes. Like, what did you write about? What did what's the biggest takeaway? And what should we do with it? Yeah. Love making spin-off. scientists, making scientists go through and describe their research to you. Um, like in terms of metaphors is also really fun. Like, mm-hmm. I think that I described, so uh, during college, I did three internships. So co-ops are you take six months off school. So like you do like a full fall semester and then instead of spring or summer semester, you like work at a real job for six months. So I did like three of those. And then I did an uh, REU, which is a research education opportunity for undergraduates. It's sponsored by the National Science, uh, the National Science Foundation. Um, and I think I explained my RU research to my mom that like I was feeding different kinds of pie to, uh, to different algae because, you know, what I was actually doing was like feeding them different species of nitrate, nitrogen. So like there's nitrogen that's in a nitrate form and in a nitrate form, like different types of nitrogen. But my mom couldn't conceptualize the like the difference between a nitrate and a nitrite. So I went ahead and I was like, okay, so I've got strawberry pie, blueberry pie, and apple pie. And I'm just, I want to know if the strawberry pie is the best kind of pie. Like, is there the most nutrients in strawberries? I don't know. But I love trying it. to go through and explain that to normal people is, is always fun. So Making... tell us, tell us about go on about your studies now yeah yeah okay um so I did in college I did these three like six month long internships and the first one I was working on like bacteria and I was like this is maybe a little bit too small like Mm -hmm. it's okay but I'm not totally in love so I worked my way up and so the next one I worked on was algae and shellfish and I was like okay this is like the algae is better but like, we'll, we'll go one bigger. And so then I worked on rotifers for my third one. So rotifers are still, you know, like not even half an inch long. They're very small. They've got three little toes and they eat with the top of their heads. They have cilia on top of their heads. Cute. Um, and they were too big. I was trying to figure <laughs> them out was the worst. So, <laughs> so we've pinpointed it down. Bacteria too small, rotifer too big. Shellfish acceptable. So then at that point I was kind of like, okay, shellfish or algae, like we'll kind of see where we're going to go with that. Um, and then I worked at a shellfish aquaculture facility. Um, Rutgers has this place that does shellfish. They were growing algae in order to feed it to the shellfish. And at that point, I kind of realized that maybe my uh, 
my super scientific way about of going about it was a little bit flawed because really you can't just pick one size of organism. You should really pick like you can't pick out one specific size and be like that's the thing. It's you have to pick like okay, I'm going to work on like a system. Mm-hmm. Like you really can't pick out like okay, well, clearly the bacteria are too small and rotifer they're too big. So when I do something system, in between. You mean like a like a food chain or some sort of like, like environmental yeah. system or something. Right. Yeah. Like no organism is going to be all by itself. You can't just say, I'm only going to work on this one species of diatom for the rest of my life. Yeah. The thing that you I kind find... of have to be like looking at a larger I'm part so, of the ocean. I'm so fascinated talking to scientists. I was recently watching um, the Netflix documentary about the Lenox Hill hospital if you guys have Mm. seen it and obviously very different medical research versus um, marine biology research but very similar and something that one of the doctors said that struck me in that documentary was he was researching glioblastomas which are super deadly brain cancers that most people when they get diagnosed they're dead within three to six months of diagnosis Mm so um, you know very rare but clearly a need if there's a, a chance to to cure this cancer um it's it's not a cancer that you can kind of live with um and the the main oncologist that works at Lenox Hill he was like I've worked for 25 years to move the life expectancy for glioblastoma from six months to eight months like that's his whole career and that just really struck me like the dedication of the mm-hmm. scientist of like he's fighting for so little but at the same time it's moving the needle so much in a direction and like who knows how much it's going to move the next the next generation the next generation or the next person working on it and the time it takes like I think with nine to five jobs like even what we were talking about with burnout like I felt that I moved in my career from doing accounting and finance now I work in supply chain operations like I can't imagine looking at one thing and being so dedicated to it for my whole career. So how do you look at that from a scientist? Is that something that excites you and that's what drew you to the field or? Yeah. Okay. So I, at one point I was fully ready to be like, when I was little, I used to say I wanted to be a a marine biologist who specialized in turtles. Cause I was like, turtles are the coolest thing. I want to work on turtles only. Charismatic Megabata. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Turtles are, like, maybe not as big of a megafauna, but, like, they're still pretty charismatic yeah. for sure. And, like, but it, it, at some point I did realize, like, I got to a point where I was, like, oh, we really do. Like, scientists get these, like, blinders on. And they're, like, I'm going to work on this one thing. I'm going to work and, like, devote my whole life to, like, this one thing. Because that's what scientists did, like, in the past in a similar way to, like, my dad's worked at IBM for his whole career and he'll probably work at the whole career. But in like the more modern world, you kind of have to be more of a generalist. Like you're never going to work on exactly one thing forever. If you really have to look more at like a whole ecosystem or like pull back a little bit and be like, how is it all connected? Cause it is all connected and other things are going to have like, I met a gentleman who was an older scientist at the marine biological labs and he had worked only on cilia and jellyfish in this one species of jellyfish for his whole career and that i don't think that would ever happen at this point like 
scientists at this point have to kind of be generalists and be like, okay, well, I'm interested in looking at like the food web in this area, or I'm interested in looking at like how lead affects the ocean. So like you kind of have like an overarching topic. And then within that you like have little specialized areas Whereas at one point, definitely people were like specializing fully into like, I'm only going to look at just the ciliate on just this one jellyfish. And do you think, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because of the the scientists themselves and just the general like, or do you think it's it's funding? It's partially funding, but it's mostly that we have like such new and different technology. Like you, you can get so many more answers than you could in the past just because we have like metagenomics and like different like there because there's so much more technology there's like dna stuff that you could look at you could look at metabolism there's more opportunities and like ways to look at things so then different scientists kind of have to either work together in groups of like I'm a biologist, you're a chemist, let's like look at the biology and chemistry of this thing or, you know, something along those lines where in order to get, part of it is the funding, part of it really is the funding. Um, uh, The NSF recently introduced a thing where to get funding, um, you have to include a social science and outreach aspect to your to your uh, proposals. Love that. Fascinating. You have to communicate your science to the public. And you have to, like, incorporate that and, like, conveying your science into it. You can't just be like, I am an old man named Sydney, and I'm going to go ahead and work on just these cilia. And no one will ever learn about it because only I work on it and no one will ever care because I haven't told anybody about it in 40 years. I just sit in my lab. (laughs) Do you think on one hand, that's so fascinating. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I didn't know. Do you see it? Because on one hand, I see it as like, that's awesome, especially if it's public funding, the public should know about it. And there should be a broader, you know, social reason to have the science. But do you think that it limits important research that's a little bit more niche that maybe doesn't have as much interest Mm. from the general, you know, public and journalists that wouldn't want to write about it, or it doesn't have like sometimes... Maybe it's just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. There's no action that comes from this, but just knowing about it makes us grow as a human population. Right. So part of the problem that we're having right now, like we, science as a field, part of the problem (laughs) that we have as like science as a field has is that scientists are not always the best at explaining things to the public. Yeah. Um, And so things get lost in between like the scientists trying to explain and the public and maybe it's that the journalist tried to sensationalize what was happening to get everybody excited and get them really hype about what was happening maybe it's that the scientist didn't really fully explain like the implications like i think there was a whole study done a couple years ago about these this one kind of shrimp and the different kinds of like cones and rods in their eyes. And they went ahead and they like took their little eyeballs out (laughs) and, you know, conveying that to the public being like, we took the shrimp's eyeballs out and they still were able to see because they had this other kind of sensing 
you know, <laughs> the public is like, you took the shrimp's eyeballs out? Why did you do that? That's horrible. And then you get defunded. But really what they were doing <laughs> was like, you know, trying to look at the other like sensing properties of the shrimp to then use those to help humans. And so then you get into like, if you don't convey it exactly correctly, if the public, if what the public hears is we only fed blue M&Ms to somebody for a year and a half and they developed cancer. They're like, blue M&Ms cause cancer. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, it could be that like maybe that that person really shouldn't have been eating exclusively blue M&Ms for a year and a half. Yeah. Like there's just, there's so many different ways to look at science and so the scientists don't always explain it very well. And then the public doesn't always understand because there is that kind of barrier of knowledge. So if we're reading like the newspaper and I feel like this is a very Mm -hmm. timely topic, obviously in the COVID era, but just generally to when science is kind of under attack or I would say almost misunderstood. And there's like every day there's a new you know we're always reading articles that's like a new study came out and it said such and such and then like maybe it was sensationalized in the headlines and you read stuff but like do you have any general tips for the lay person out there of how to decode this is like a real scientific finding versus this is just like some bullshit that's out there yeah so part of what's happening right now is that people are seeing in real time like kind of the peer review process and what the process that everyone goes through like as scientists we kind of have to go through and someone puts their discovery out there says i found this thing and then in order to get it published in a major journal you have to go through peer review which is that it's double blind so you submit your thing to the journal and an editor says okay i'm going to take this thing i'm going to take everyone's names off of it It's like now it's indistinguishable and I'm going to send it blind to two reviewers who don't know who you are and you don't know who they are. So then they like review it and send it back to the editor and the editor says, okay, based on what these two people who don't know who you are and don't really know anything, but based on just them looking at your science, what they say is that you don't have enough trials and they send it back to the first person and they're like, the reviewers say you don't have enough trials. So that peer review process is really important in order to like kind of do the check and balance on like pushing the science forward so that when a paper comes out in a journal that is peer reviewed, you can kind of trust it. But at the same time, as soon as, you know, you put it out into the world and say, here's my peer reviewed article, I found a thing. It has to be replicable. Like other people have to be able to go and do that same experiment and find the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like clearly something has gone on, something hanky has happened. So people are kind of seeing the the forward and backward progress that has been happening behind the scenes usually. But now it's a lot clearer because people are paying a lot more attention because, you know, as soon as somebody says this one antibiotic is maybe effective and then somebody tries it in another country and says that's not effective here. So something else must have been going on. So we take a step back. And then we take us two steps forward and we take a step back because that like forward and backward progress, we're moving forward gradually. But in terms of like progress is being made, but it isn't always very quick. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what we're seeing in real time here is that the public is feeling like they're being betrayed. Like 
they said it was going to be a thing, but it's not a thing. They said this was effective, but it's not effective. Where, you know, really don't let yourself get so caught up in, like, one single discovery because, you know, it's always a two steps forward, one step back process. Like, Shannon, I'm so glad that you brought this up because I feel like I've said this to myself and to others a few times lately. I'm like, problem with what's going on right now in the media is conversations that should be happening in academia. That's why mm-hmm. we have academia, right? There, yeah. It's not just the ivory tower. Like there is a legitimate reason for it. And we're seeing it not just in science with the coronavirus, <laughs> but we're seeing it, you know, in the social sciences as people are trying to work mm-hmm. out, you know, what is cultural appropriation? What's not? How? Where True. Did, where did Black Lives Matter fit in the greater scheme of history? What does this mean? So all of these conversations that I think I think should is not an appropriate word, but that would normally take place historically, right? historically, historically, historically take place yeah. um, in an academic environment are now taking place in a pop culture environment. And I think you're right. It's the 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 people feel bamboozled and they think, well, you said this, you said that. I, am I supposed to believe this or am I supposed to do that? Is this okay? Is this not okay? It's really hard to to focus. So I love um, I love that you brought that up and thanks for validating my thoughts. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, so people usually don't get to see this, like the, the forward backward process, like we're mm-hmm. making progress forward. It just might not feel like it at any given point in time. Yeah. And Shannon, can you also speak a little bit to mm-hmm like the speed at which this is happening right now, because normally the peer review process is not, it's quite lengthy, correct? It is quite lengthy. Yeah. Um, Scientists are not out and about currently. So peer review is happening a little bit faster currently than it would normally because all these professors can't pretend like their computers don't exist for hours of the day. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they still do, but they don't need to. I love that you, I love that. Maybe we can just, what are what are your savage takes on academia? Because my my boyfriend's in school and he's been doing the like Zoom university thing, and I'm like, wow, this is great. Professors don't know how to use Zoom. It's really fascinating to me. Oh, all these poor they're professors trying their best. truly they're they're trying their best, and nothing is working properly. <laughs> um, I so I have this one professor and. Apparently, he's in person, he's a really great teacher, but what he's been doing is a flipped classroom. So he puts our, like, we read our homework, so we have readings, and then he puts our lectures on YouTube. Mm. And we watch our lectures on YouTube. Um, But because there's not, like, the feedback of the classroom of him just, like, giving his lecture to his camera and then posting it on YouTube and we watch it, you know, if someone's confused, if I'm confused, it's always me. I'm always confused. And, I, you know, you can't raise your hand. There's no feedback yeah. of, like, the professor just full steam ahead. I think that we're mm-hmm. going to get a lot done this semester in terms of he'll get through all the material. But I don't know that we're all going to understand it. Yeah. yeah, it's rough. Yeah. So what are your – you obviously have just entered a Ph.D. program. So what are your yeah. – um, kind of goals with that and what made you choose Shay has gone on her own PhD you know journey as well of applying and whatnot and I know it's a bit it's a big commitment it's a big time commitment and financial commitment and everything um so what what kind of made you go all in on academia and what are you looking to to use the PhD for in the future 
Um, so your question is, why have you decided to be poor for five to seven years? <laughs> That's a part um, of it, but... Yeah, I mean, it's a major part of it. Um, so what I was doing beforehand this was working as a lab technician. And how I got to a point where I was kind of feeling like, all the cool stuff that's happening here, I don't get to do because I don't have the, mm. like, the qualifications to do it. I, I don't get to do any of the cool stuff. I don't get to do any of the cool science at all. All I have to do is do what other people tell me to do because I'm not the boss. I want to be the boss. I want to do the cool science. So at that point, I was kind of like, well, that's, that's when you get more education. You have to go for either a master's degree and a PhD or a PhD or some sort of certificate program. And so I looked into all of those. And I think the certificate program was not for me. Um, in terms of like certificate programs are useful for when you like kind of know that you're going to go into like a specific career and you're like, I'm going to work in industry in this one area. Whereas I'm kind of more interested in like, I wanted to go into more like the research type stuff. And so, uh, that would be like master's PhD type area. Um, and I managed to finagle myself to go straight for the PhD. We've skipped a master's. I don't yeah, have I one, and I'm not going to get one. <laughs> Who needs one? Is that relatively rare? Um, people do it. I don't think that a majority of people do it. Um, well, is it true? Like, I know in some different programs that I've mm-hmm. been a part of and looked at in the past, they let you, like, they say you're in the PhD program, but if after two years you're like, fuck it, they'll let you go with a master's. Yeah, that's called mastering out, and it's always an option in any yeah. PhD program. Um, there is, you know, some shame associated with it generally. <laughs> it's true, um, but but yeah, not once no, you're out, no one right. knows. No one needs to know. Um, yeah, and there's also there's a lot of programs where like you sign up for a master's, and then once you get one year in, you say, actually, maybe we should just make this a PhD. And at that point, they like add more years onto the end of your master's degree, and you get a master's degree, and then proceed on to a PhD. Mm -hmm. Um, But specifically, I decided that I had graduated in 2016. I had four years of working in labs. And I was kind of like, well, I think that's good enough. I think that you all should take me as it is. (laughs) I love it. I think that you should just accept me as a PhD student, and I should just get to skip it. I did other stuff, and it was cool. And they let me, so. I love that. What? What are these cool things that you're hoping to do once you're done? Um, I think that <laughs> that's a really hard question. I know. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, so as of right now, I think that I would like to work on like improving aquaculture and maybe sort of integrating aquaculture and like so aquaculture of like shellfish is we go ahead and you can either do it in a lab and you try to grow them in a lab or you get them to a certain point you get them to like being like an inch long and Mm -hmm. you put whatever oyster mussel whatever you just put it out in the bay leave it out there for a couple years and then bring it back in okay um so i think it's uh it's really a good idea for if we want to do that and we want to you know go ahead and get food in a way so that we like grow to a certain size We put it out, we bring it back in. But at the same time, while it's out there, it should be useful. So Mm -hmm. while it's out there, it should be able to like 
absorb pollutants or absorb toxins, but not in such a way that then when we bring it back indoors and feed it to people, it would kill them. That would be bad. That would be bad. I don't love dying. I'm a big fan of not dying. Yeah. So that's, I'm kind of interested in the idea of like using this like aquaculture pathway, but also managing to like use it in a way so that it would then improve the environment that it's in and then we could use it for food afterwards. So I I have one final question for Shannon. I don't know about you, Maddie. Yeah, I have one question after this, but maybe it's also your question. So my question is, what is your down and dirty hot take on the state of the environment at the moment? Are we going to hell in a handbasket? Can we turn the tide and what can we do? It's bad. Um, Things are bad. Things are not good. Uh, Okay. So I think actually today some environmental activists partnered with this artist and they put up a countdown clock somewhere in New York City um, counting down the seven years of carbon budget until we're on track for a one and a half degree Celsius change in global temperature at which point like it's irreversible. Like we've really done that. So like if if we don't start finding ways to to remediate what we've done already and stop the the train because we're kind of on like a runaway train right do now. You, do you see this was kind of it's great. Shay and I are so in sync. We're, we're like one best. mind. My one my mind. final question was going to be like, what's one thing that someone could do to help the ocean be less pollutant filled? My I'm clearly like losing my brain right now but like you know what I mean like what's one way to save the ocean but I'm interested because you Shay kind of asked a a more general question you brought up the the carbon in the atmosphere and the raising of the temperature but on a scale of like all the issues when people say climate change or the environment it could be Mm -hmm. the fact that there's huge wildfires happening it could be the carbon aspect it could be plastics and pollutants in the ocean it could be like Mm -hmm. all of these number of things so like for those big hot ticket items what do you see as like the biggest issue and what are one obviously they're all big issues but like what is the biggest number one thing and then what are things that people can do about it yeah so some of the things that like you can do by yourself just yourself um, try to cut out microplastics if you can, like look at your face wash, look at your like products and be like, try to look up, I don't remember the name of like what microbeads are, but Mm -hmm. like those morning burst, like cleaning clear face washes, they're full of plastic and that's going to go to the ocean. They're so bad for your skin too. They're bad for your skin too. Your straw doesn't matter. Like in the grand scheme of things, Mm -hmm. your straw does not matter. So we need to stop thinking about like little stuff really and start working on like societal change is, is really the thing. Like nothing, I don't want to be like, nothing to be like nothing you do matters because stuff you do matters. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the size of impacts that we really need to like get more of a change, we really need like much larger changes than you can do on your own. So do your best to like drive less, take more public transit, don't have microbeads in your face wash, like that sort of stuff. But at the same time, advocating and like protesting 
and trying to get laws passed so that corporations can can't pollute as much and that like more of the bigger things like because really so of the plastic in the ocean more than like I think it's like 73 or 74 percent is fishing nets Mm. um like plastic fishing nets that have just you know they break a little bit so they get dumped overboard like your straws that's crazy that's such a specific item yeah it's specifically it's fishing nets and so like you know don't take a straw from duncan if you don't have to but at the same time like disabled people need straws so like the the big things are things that like you can't do yourself so we really need to work together is the is the takeaway i have for you and it's an international problem too and it's an international problem too yeah yeah that's very that's very interesting cool I think that was all of our questions. Shall we transition? Yes, we are now transitioning into the archery range segment of today's broadcast. Uh, so, Shannon, we're going to ask you a series of rapid fire questions. Uh, answer... Oh, yeah. Okay. No, you're ready to go. Uh, answer... Zoe lied about toast. I can do anything I want. Perfect. <laughs> Zoe can lie about toast. I can say whatever I want. Continue. Okay. Uh, so, whatever comes first to your head. And then yeah. uh, it doesn't have to be your favorite of all time, just a favorite. And what did mm-hmm. Zoe lie about in relation to toast? She, You asked her what her favorite food as a child was, and she said toast. And then later she was like, oh, no, I don't know if it was toast. I think she <laughs> lied. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. That was so we love cute. Zoe. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So I'll start you then, Shannon, with favorite mm-hmm. childhood snack. Dunkaroos. Well, they're coming back, I heard. Um, I'm so excited. <laughs> the millennial dream. Um, favorite movie? It Takes Two. Aw. It's a cute uh, movie. Favorite book? Um, so I like the Terry Pratchett, Tiffany Aching novels. Uh, a Hat Full of Sky is my favorite. <laughs> Love it. Uh, favorite TV show? Um, right now it's The Umbrella Academy. We oh. just finished watching that. So good. Nice. It's good, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure how where they're going to take it next season, but it's good stuff. Maddie, highly. You know, I think it's going to be Nazis, and I think it is what it is. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to be okay with that. Yep. Um, your turn, Shay. Oh, uh, favorite. Oh, we did favorite TV show. Uh, favorite. Uh, oh, my God. I realized I didn't have any coffee today, and now that's why my brain. I is have one favorite place that you've oh. traveled but never lived. Um, Canada, Grand oh. Manan Island specifically. Oh. It was really pretty. I love it. Uh, favorite charismatic megafauna. I couldn't think of the word charismatic because <laughs> I need coffee. Um, whales. Ooh, a specific type of whale, or just all of them? Ooh, wait, no, stingrays, like manta rays. Oh, giant manta rays. I love that. Very cool. Um, Favorite scientist or researcher? And maybe say what their research or particular brand of science is. Um, Like someone that inspires you in the field. Were you going to say Bill Nye? Is that where that was going? I was going to say Bill Nye. (laughs) I love that. A millennial icon. (laughs) We love Bill Nye. 
what a great guy. Yeah. I feel like he's good. I feel like he's a good one for what we were talking about earlier of like bridging mm-hmm. science and pop culture and breaking science down into something that people can understand. Especially with his newer show, the one that like just came out yes, a couple years so ago. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, he's really good at communicating science. Love that for him. Love it. <laughs> Wait, I have one more. Yes. Mm-hmm. Favorite adorable mini fauna? I don't know what you would call them, but Oh yeah. <laughs> um uh, uh diatoms. I love them. They're real cute. And important awesome. in the ecosystem. And yes. important in the ecosystem. Even more importantly. Awesome. Well, thanks Shannon. Do you have yeah. a place um that you want to be found? If not, no pressure. We always give the option if you want to plug anything. Or... No? I think I'm good. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Your work speaks for itself. Awesome. We're excited to see your future peer-reviewed articles. Thank you. They're going to be amazing. Thank awesome. you. Yay. Awesome. Campers, uh, we love you. We'll see you in two weeks. And, you know, wash your hands, wear a mask, be nice to people, etc. And register to vote. And register to vote. Please. Of course. How could we forget? Thanks for listening. Camp Adulthood is hosted by Maddie Yergi, Resident Youth, and Shay Keats, Camp Adulthood. We are produced by Jenny Mayfield, and this episode was recorded in Maddie's living room. You can find us on social media at camp underscore adulthood. You can email us hello at campadulthood.com, and you can visit us at campadulthood.com. Thanks, campers. We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood.